there's a wrong question. And the wrong question is the question that when you say it or when you write it or when you think it, it makes you feel like a piece of shit. The question itself abuses you. The question itself estranges you from what's true for you. The question itself is like pulling the asshole card and it trumps every other question and it stops the conversation. It's not actually answerable. The question is just punishment with a question mark at the end of it. Okay, everybody on is listening has got to know what that is. Whatever those questions are that you ruminate in your head, if I could only answer this, if they make you feel like shit, just asking them, it's the wrong question. That was Diana Valentine, and you're listening to Real Talk Radio with Nicole Antoinette, episode 133. Welcome to Real Talk Radio with Nicole Antoinette. That's me, the podcast that's filled with refreshingly honest conversations about the wonderful mess of being human. I'm super thrilled that you're listening in today, and I want to take a minute right here at the top to share some gratitude and then to share an exciting update. So first, seriously, thanks for listening to this show. Thanks for valuing honest conversations. Thanks for being open to hearing from guests whose lived experiences and opinions might be different from your own. That's hugely important. And thanks for the more tangible stuff as well, for taking a minute or two to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening from. That's such a huge help in spreading the word and in helping new people find us. So thank you so much for doing that. The show currently has 233 ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts, and I would love to get to 500 by the end of the year. So thank you for helping with that if you have a minute to jump on and leave a rating or review. And more than anything, thanks so much for supporting and funding this show on Patreon. Together, we've built a truly community-funded podcast with no ads or corporate sponsorship, which means that we have complete freedom to come together with more honesty than ever before, which I'm really excited about. So in a few minutes, I'm going to introduce you to today's wonderful guest. But first, in case you're new to this show, I'd love to just quickly explain what we do here. At the heart of it, my guests and I are committed to one simple but powerful thing— telling the truth about our lives. No one's here to sell you anything. No one's trying to get you to fix yourself or your life. I certainly don't have any magic answers. And I can't give you a miraculous 10-day six-step life hack plan for anything. Sorry, not sorry. <laughs> but as a recovering self-help junkie myself, honestly, I'm so over that approach. And my guess is that maybe you are too. Perhaps that's why you're here. So no, that's not what this show's about. Here at Real Talk Radio, I sit down with athletes, writers, entrepreneurs, parents, coaches, adventurers, artists, activists, and many others, and we dive deep into meaningful topics. We talk about work, love, money, sex, addiction, friendship, racism, body image, mental health, grief, fear, courage, change, and everything in between. This is definitely an adult podcast covering adult subjects, which means that we often use adult language, so fair warning on that, but we never shy away from telling the unfiltered truth in an open and honest way even when that's uncomfortable. So with this mission in mind, like I said, you won't hear any ads or sponsor promotions. These honest conversations are 100% listener funded, made possible by awesome regular people like you who give $8 or more per eight episode season. The show is and will always be free, but if you love it, if these conversations make you laugh, think, or just feel less alone, I hope that you'll go to patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette to make your pledge of $8 or more per eight episode season. And now for that quick update that I said that I'm excited to share. Over on Patreon, you'll see our current funding goal. And when we reach that goal, it means that every single person who works on this show will get paid. That includes me and my sound engineer, Adam Day, as well as every single guest who comes onto the show. 
because that's my vision for each of our guests to be paid for the time, energy, honesty, care, and emotional labor that they bring to these conversations. The budget won't be huge to start with, and it'll hopefully continue to grow over time as the community grows and obviously then the funding grows with it. But higher rates will always be paid to our guests of color, as well as our queer and trans guests and others with traditionally marginalized identities who are generously spending a few hours of their time with me, a white straight cis woman, to share their lives and stories with our majority white audience. Being able to pay all of our guests has been a dream of mine for a while now, because as you've probably heard me say before, I fully believe that where we spend our money is a real-time vote for the kind of world we want to live in. And if I want to live in a world where people get paid for the work that they do, especially creative work, that means that it's up to me to create that model here at Real Talk Radio, even if it's definitely not the norm in the podcast industry. And believe me, it's not. So just know that when you help to fund this show, you're using your money as a vote for a world of honest, judgment-free conversations. You're voting to hear more stories from a wide-ranging group of people, the vast majority of whom are women, and you're voting to pay those folks for the entertainment and education that they so expertly provide. When you support this show, you're saying loudly and proudly that women's voices deserve to be heard and that no topic should be off limits due to fear or shame. It's a show by truth tellers for truth tellers. And as a thank you for supporting, you'll get access to over 40 hours of bonus content, as well as our monthly book club, my weekly behind the scenes email series where I share my real life in real time. Oh man, if you think it gets vulnerable and honest on the podcast, just wait until you start getting my emails. (laughs) Plus, you'll be the first to know when tickets go on sale for Real Talk Live events and retreats. Also, 5% of each season's profits are donated to social justice organizations, a different organization each season. Uh, Past organizations include Black Lives Matter and the Venture Out Project, so you can feel awesome about that aspect of your contribution as well. When you head over to Patreon, you'll see that there are currently three different funding levels that you can choose from, an $8 level, a $16 level, and a $25 level, each with their own unique, awesome bonuses. At the $25 level, we even do live Google Hangouts together, and oh my gosh, those are so much fun. So one more time, that's patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette. And at the very end of this episode, you'll actually get to meet one of our Patreon community members who joins me for a fun little rapid fire question round. So stick around for that after the main episode for sure. And now let's dive right into today's episode. Today, you'll get to meet Diana Valentine. Diana is an oracle, and if you aren't sure what that means, don't worry, you'll learn all about it in this episode. Diana began her signature offering, the Woke Up Knowing Experience, in 2011, after she had a waking vision of being in a bed in an ancient castle with people sitting around her bed waiting to hear a dream she'd had. Years later, and she's dreamt in several countries, in languages she didn't speak, for seekers, artists, scientists, and humanitarians. In this episode, Diana goes into detail about her work and about what it means to be an oracle. We talk about how to develop your intuition, the trouble with carrying around other people's scripts for how we should act and who we should be, and so much more. Diana also opens up about the financial side of her business and about some of the money baggage that she's had to work through and unlearn over the years. And then, perhaps my favorite part of our conversation, she breaks down the three different types of questions that we can ask ourselves and highlights which one is the best one. I loved talking with Diana about her life and her work, and I hope that you love learning from her as well. So all of that starts in just a moment, and as always, you'll be able to find all the links and resources mentioned in this episode over in the show notes at NicoleAntoinette.com slash podcast. All right, we are rolling. Diana, welcome to the show. Thank you. Tell me one of the most fun things that you've done so far this year. 
Oh, I got on a plane and I went to New Zealand and I knew one person just very superficially. (laughs) That That sounds amazing. (laughs) So many follow-up questions. Uh, (laughs) Why New Zealand? Uh, I, in, in 1997, I took a trip around the world and it was one of those trips where you have five stops and you just have to keep going in the same direction, like east or west or whatever, whichever direction you started out in. So I left from Los Angeles and went to French Polynesia for a month. And then I went to Southeast Asia and I laid over in Auckland and I had a long layover. It was about four hours or something. When I got off the plane, I walked off of my gate and there was a huge mural, like, like 15 feet high and maybe 35 or 40 feet long of just sheep, just a photograph of sheep on a hill. <laughs> and I burst out laughing because I thought that is the most absurd mural I've ever seen. I mean, it was just, it, it was hysterical to me and I'm laughing hysterically and everybody's looking at me like a crazy person. I'm like, but look at this mural. It's so funny. And I thought I will love these people because that's hilarious to me. And also sheep. Why? Like it's just fabulous. So I thought I want to stay here. And it was one of those tickets that you could make a change in the ticket, but you had to call a travel agent because this is back in the age of dinosaurs. And so I called the travel agent and of course it was Sunday in the States. So I couldn't make the change. So I continued with my trip and I pined for New Zealand all that time. My gosh, the, the power of a sheep mural, <laughs> the power of a flipping hilarious, big, huge photo, just all sheep, just looking at you. It was so funny to me. Anyway, so I had that on my mind. And then last year, I put it on my on my about page on my website, I have places and people and projects I'd like to dream into or dream for or dream with or collaborate with. And New Zealand has been on that list. It's been on my list for 21 years. So I had the opportunity to do it. It was a very short turnaround. And I just went for it. So that was probably the most fun. So what was the most memorable or meaningful part of that trip for you? You know, it was chock full of really potent experiences. Let's see. Uh, probably learning how to, it's called um, when when um, Maori people introduce themselves, they have an introduction that introduces themselves from where their people came from, where they came from, what land they were born on, what the, how they're connected to the earth. It's a whole intro, long introduction. And so... Um, and I, I may be saying this incorrectly, but I believe it's called Faka Papa. It starts with a W. The W is an F sound in Maori language. And and I got to meet a couple of really beautiful women who are cultural workers, um, Maori cultural workers, and they support their community in this really great organization. And they taught me how to do that intro properly. And they practiced it with me because they did the introduction around their organization. So maybe five or six times I was hearing my own introduction and where I belong and how where I came from. And I was adding to it because I said, oh, actually, you know, I forgot this one thing or let's add in this thing. And so by the end, it's this very long introduction, but it is so much more meaningful 
and so much more true as a way to member yourself in the room or or be remembered or be really presented in a proper way that it really it really shifted something for me um so I think that was very meaningful and also I did you know pretty profound um dream work while I was there which was over a couple of days so there was a lot there was a lot that was very meaningful, but that one was a big one. Yeah, I'm so interested in that. Would you feel comfortable sharing what that introduction was that you came up with? <sighs> okay, well, it's going to be different today than it was then because I don't have it. I actually have it written down, but not in front of me. Um, so it would. It was like, let me just tell you the parts of it, right, instead of the introduction because the introduction is not going to be correct right okay. now. Um, but it was that I am non maori so there's a word for non maori so you start with that like i'm i'm not from here and i claim that and i know that and i'm you know cool with that and i um was born in san jose california but i grew up in ohio and my mother is pennsylvania dutch irish and german and my dad is blackfoot indian african american and they also both grew up in ohio my dad grew up in southern Oh, central Southern Ohio. My mom grew up in Northeastern Ohio. And I grew up in Central Ohio, but I've traveled to many places and lived in many places. So there's a real, real importance there of like, where have you lived? Where have you made your home? So then you listed all the, I listed all the places I live, which have been like seven places. And now I, um, my, I claim my home in Santa Monica, California. And um, my people in Santa Monica come from all over and are not necessarily related to me. So my closest people here in Santa Monica are not my relatives. I live far away from my relatives, which is an important point. And um, that the work I do is um, that I, you know, I work with spirit through through dreams. And people ask me questions and I help them on their spiritual path with um, my dreams. And so... That was, that's the difference between, hi, I'm Diana, I'm an oracle, <laughs> and what they want to know, right? That's, I feel, I, I mean, I literally have chills. That was, there's something about what you just said that's on one hand so simple, like, sure, it's where you're from, it's where your parents grew up, it's where you grew up, it's not, you know, anything like, oh my gosh, it's something I would never think to ask someone or never think to want to know about someone, but just the way that you presented that, it has this grounded feel to it. I don't know. There's just like something in what you said that I completely understand why it felt so powerful for you to kind of go through that experience. Yeah. And, and to hear someone else who I don't know in our conversation, they were, you know, they gathered information, they were listening to me and stuff and to have them introduce me in Maori. Right. So I'm only hearing like the words that aren't Maori words. Right. But I'm hearing that whole introduction. Right. And going, oh, yeah, yeah, right, that's true. Oh, is that important to, like, someone I've never, like, someone in the break area of this organization <laughs> to know? Like, I'm like, wow, this is, oh, so this is really a thing. So then by the third time I said, so what, so when you introduce me, it's like all the stuff? And they're like, yeah, all the stuff. And so I was like, well, there's kind of something that I thought of. And they're like, tell us. And then the next introduction had that part in it, you know. <laughs> and um, I think there's something about that claiming about being claimed, um, you know, as not only as a mystic um, in various places that I've been to do dream work, but but also as a 
person who belongs to many stories. I belong to many stories. Um, that made me feel whole in a way that was very interesting. Yeah, and, and I, th- I think very meaningful. Yeah, I think, and when you think about belonging or you know being a member of a community, I think it is easy to think about our family of origin or the place that we grew up. And sure, those things are important and can be important. But for whatever reason, maybe folks don't identify with that, or that's a relationship that doesn't feel good. And I love what you were sharing about, oh, hey, what about this thing? This is important too. And what you said about, oh, my closest people to me aren't necessarily from here, aren't related to me. This idea that you can also choose and create your own sense of belonging in your own place and like choose that for yourself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and, and sort of curate in a collaborative way, curate it because you, you it's not um, an individualistic process belonging or membership Mm -hmm. it's collaborative it's it sometimes it's it's public performance art sometimes it's very private and intimate collaboration sometimes it's you know I'm collaborating in the Faka Papa I'm collaborating with my ancestry and my lineage and where people were from in my experiences that I don't know and didn't know and don't know their names. And, you know, there was a lot of history that's been lost due to systematic um, white supremacy and racism and oppression. So, you know, being able to say some of those words and really remember myself in that way, I think is very important. And I really don't do it. I mean, maybe I've even mentioned some of that story of myself maybe twice or three times in 20 years or something. Mm -hmm. And then it was like in one two hour visit to a public organization, I heard it like eight times, seven or eight times, and then said it several times. Because then, you know, then I, then when we got to a certain point, they said, okay, introduce yourself. (laughs) Like now you do it. Right. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh shit. (laughs) <laughs> okay. 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 Wait, <laughs> let me go back to the beginning, you know, yeah. before the beginning, right? Because we, we belong before the beginning of us, mm-hmm. which is the whole point. So after that experience, has that shifted what you've been thinking about, about this idea of belonging? Okay. So back in December, one line of, so sometimes I have themes that come through and I'll work on a project or I'll work on a line of thinking or I'll work on a theme for a while. And the one that came through in December was the fecundity of deceit, which is one of the things I mentioned to you that I thought would be a good topic. That then transitioned, interestingly, through a couple particular stories around March or maybe early April, but definitely by the end of March, I think it was starting to come through. I started to be having these dreams and transmissions. And this coincides always with people who show up to work with me. So in the fecundity of deceit, there were all these people who showed up talking about lies, deceits, lying to themselves, partners who'd lied to them, things that they were doing that they knew were out of alignment or were dishonest in some way. And then right around mid to late March, all these people started coming through to like to hire me, to work with me, real people, real human beings, not like people who are transmitting through my dreams or something, but real human beings were signing up for sessions. 
and they were asking questions about belonging and about like, if I do this, if I change the genre of the writing, I've already published seven books in this genre and I want to change to this other genre. Like, am I going to lose that 120,000 people, you know, Mm -hmm. or how do I make peace with this relationship with somebody in my family? Because I think if I challenge it, right, I'm going to be dismembered. Uh, um, So then all of the these messages started coming through about belonging about my own membership and then i had then i went to new zealand the fucking faka papa blew my mind man and so you know so 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 that's kind of that started to come through that yeah that's so interesting when yeah when in your email when you said um when we were talking about what essentially talking about what to talk about. And you said one of the subjects that you had been thinking about lately was the fecundity of deceit. First of all, I was like, that's the most interesting phrase I've heard in a really long time. <laughs> I was like, literally, when I was making my notes, I just wrote that down, I circled it. And then next to it, I wrote three question marks, because I really didn't know what you meant by that. So can you even say a li- like going back a little bit, can you even say a little bit more about what you mean when you say that phrase? The fecundity of deceit? Yeah. Yeah. So that came through as its own phrase through a dream. So like I woke up one morning and I was like, this is all about the fecundity of deceit. And then I wrote it down. I was like, holy shit, that's good. I was like, what is is that? It's that's what I was like, what is that? Yeah. Same reaction. I was like, what does that even mean? So then I had to like, I started to look at, like I was looking at lying. Okay. So so think about deceit. So deceit can come in so many ways. It can come through like lying through our mouths. It can come through systematic deceit, right? So like putting something out that says it's this thing, but actually it's there for the secondary gain to manipulate you into like, let's say buying something else, for instance. Um, what happens when deceit is life-saving? What happens when it's a coping mechanism that actually saves your life? You have to say, I belong to, I, I, am, a, I, am, I am aligned with the powers that be so that I don't get killed, mm-hmm. right? What about, um, you know, all the ways that deceit plays out? What about like faker jaker animals, right? What about animals who like, pretend they're doing one thing, but they're really doing another thing, or they're camouflaged, or they're, you know, they change colors at certain times of year to be able to like blend in and like be stealth. Like just, I I just, so I went like on down the most fabulous bunny hole of just thinking about the fertility and the, and the utility and the nutrition of deceit, as opposed to what gets played out is like, you can never lie and you have to be honest and you're not authentic if you're not being truthful and you have to tell the truth at all the time. And the fucking rat, have you read anything about the radical honesty movement? This yeah. whole thing, right? So it's like, and then you just have to tell everybody what the fuck you think. And like, you're just a navel gazing gobbler out there, like doing things, jacking off with your truth. You know what I mean? <laughs> So like, I just like went crazy. So I was just like thinking about it and reading about it, writing about it and dreaming about it and like just in it, you know, and sometimes I get those cosmic assignments and that one just came through as like a little like, oh, here's a little amuse bouche for your morning. And then I was like, what the fuck, <laughs> you know, and just went for it. So oh 
Yeah. That's a great story. I love that. It also makes me want to back up and ask you a lot of questions about your work in general. And this is one of the reasons that I was really excited to have you on the show. Um, We have quite a few people in common, friends in common, the past and maybe even current clients of yours that have also been guests on the show. I feel like you and I have been orbiting around like similar circles for a while. And um, I've heard nothing but wonderful things about the work that you do. And yet I feel like I still don't really understand it. So I'm really excited to, to sort of dig in. And I'd love to start by asking when someone asks you what it is that you do or asks you about your work, how do you describe it? Thank you for all the high compliments. I really appreciate that. And thank you for trusting me to be on your show because I know it's no small feat and that you have, <laughs> you know, you've developed a, a process of choosing people and I'm grateful that I made the cut. Um, when people ask me what I do, um, sometimes I answer them truthfully. <laughs> sometimes I don't. That's a fecundity so, of deceit. That's <laughs> a fecundity of deceit. So, um, Usually what I say is that I'm an oracle and that um, we all walk around with existential questions that we have. And I have found that sometimes giving over an existential question to someone who then gives it over to the astral plane and comes back with a set of symbolic messages is... um, more soothing and almost a more it's it's in even though it's indirect it's a more direct way to really talk to what's really happening underneath the question that's asked um so yeah so i dream for a living and people ask me questions i tell them my dreams and then we work on their questions through the symbols of the dreams it's a short version okay okay but like the longer version is really that um i I have practiced and I have developed this endurance and developed this sport of being able to listen to tracks of information that are available to us most times, but that most people don't spend time learning how to listen to. So for example, one of those tracks of information is identifying what the real question is. So people, the second, the follow-up question to what do you do is usually what kinds of questions do people ask? Do you have that question? Uh, no, no, but take it. Go for it. Yeah. Okay. So the way I respond to that is I say, what's your question? What are you struggling with? What are you dealing with? What What is an, a question that has to do with your identity development, that has to do with your membership in your community, that has to do with how to choose what work is righteous for you and, 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 and useful to the planet, how to figure out your conflicts, what's your major conflict. Those things are where I like to hang out. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I'm, first of all, a couple of definition questions you use to, and I might do this throughout the conversation, um, two words that I would love more of an explanation on. First, you said astral plane. What do you mean by that? I mean the, so we're on a conscious plane, you and I talking right now. And the astral plane is a like liminal space. So a space that's super conscious or subconscious or extra conscious that isn't about our mundane everyday um, life above the eyebrows kind of way of um, perceiving what's happening around us. So some people, for some people, and I say that instead of saying while I'm asleep, because 
while many times while people are asleep, they're not working. They're not actively working, right? So I don't want to miss, you know, misrepresent sleep, but it's this kind of super sub extra conscious way of working and place of working. So the astral plane is like the starry plane, the place that's like out of our daily consciousness. Okay. And then the other word that I'm interested in knowing a sort of why you identify with it and how you connected to it is Oracle. And I ask that because I feel like my only connection with that is from like Greek history class. <laughs> like, I, I don't know that I've ever heard the word Oracle used in a more, I don't know, modern context, maybe. And so I'd love to hear about your connection to that word. I didn't use it at first, someone else many other people used the term oracle for me and for my work. That was their interpretation of what was happening was I felt that I visited an oracle or you're an oracle or they would introduce me, you know, someone introduced me from stage as an oracle and we hadn't talked about it. And I was like, Oh, I was, I didn't, I didn't use the word for the beginning part of my several years of my work Um, because I, I don't, I like to be very specific. I'm a hyper pragmatic empiricist. I enjoy things to be articulated in an accurate way. <laughs> and so my only frame of reference was Pythia, right? In, in Greek mythology. And, and it, she was like a virgin who was trapped in the bottom of a temple and like tripping her face off. And then people would come and say, should we go to war or not? You know, mm-hmm. and um, that I don't really identify with Pythia. However, I think in our, I mean, in our outsider culture, right? I, I I feel like we're fringe dwellers. We have oracle cards. We have divination. We have ways of consulting databases of information that um, not everybody practices in and not everybody practices with. And we have ways of interpreting that in terms of identifying indicators that would give people feedback for their questions and help them find, navigate and find their way or find another way of thinking about their problem that isn't so adversarial so that they can actually calm the fuck down and do something about it. Mm -hmm, Right. mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. So it's the best word that I can think of that at least has people putting me in the right area of practice. I don't think it's the best word. Um, uh, when I was in another cultural community on um, Molokai, Hawaii, um, one of the very wise um, cultural practitioners there, who's a very, who's an activist. I mean, he was like, I just like, he like pulled me to the side cause he's kind of like a cool dude and he doesn't really like, he's not very like, you know, uh, he doesn't do, st- you know, he just pulled me aside anyway. And he said, I just want to let you know, like mystics are welcome here. Hmm. Like, and it was his way of saying like, we're cool and you can do this work here. Like you're allowed to do this work here because I wanted, you know, I wanted permission to do my work mm-hmm. there. And that's same in New Zealand. I asked for permission to do my work there and, and I'll, I'll do it in the next project that I'm doing as well. Another cultural project in another community. Um, I have to go a couple days early and I have to like explain myself and ask these different circles of wisdom if I can do my work there. So, um, you know, when he said mystics are welcome here, I was like, oh yeah, it's mystical. I get that. Like that, that makes sense to me. 
But would I use mystic? I, I don't think so, because mm-hmm. I think it would be easy to mis- be misunderstood, which is like the bane of my existence. Like it's the thing I rally against most in my life is being misunderstood. And yet <laughs> I keep doing these totally triptastic, like fringe dwelling things that almost are, you know, can't be explained really. Well, that was going to be my next question when you were saying how important language is and word choice and being pragmatic. And then, you know, just the tail end of that, wanting to make sure that you're not misunderstood and then doing something that I feel like almost nobody understands. Like, how does that feel to sort of live in that space where, you know, I think sometimes about, you know, if you're a lawyer or a doctor or, you know, when we're, when we're young and we're told like, these are the only five positions, like uh, uh, professions that exist and people understand what those are. And then if you do anything that's outside of that, and then, you know, even I think for you not having maybe many or any peers, you know, that do that this exact same type of work, how does that feel? Uh, It feels awesome. You know why? (laughs) It it didn't always feel awesome because I was always doing something different. I was always outside on the edge. I was always like, what are you doing now? And like, we go home, I'd go home to my family. They'd be like, what, what's she up to now? You know? <laughs> yeah. And it was always something that seemed really weird to them. And to me seemed co- totally obvious. Like, of course I would be a microsurgery tech in a like avant-garde medical research lab. Like, of course that would be something that I would be doing. And everyone's like, what the fuck? Like how, what is it? What are you doing? And so I was like, I help doctors. They're like, okay, she helps doctors. And then somebody said, somebody, and then the telephone gain happened. And then it ended up that I was like a secretary in a doctor's office. Like that was what the interpretation was, right? So I've always had this struggle and I, I always felt conflicted about it. And I always felt like, fuck, I'm doing another outsider goddamn thing. Why am I, why do I make it so hard? Why don't I just get a job for God's sake, you know? And so, but this one, when this assignment came through, and I call it an assignment because I do think that it is, it's changing over time. And I think it's an assignment. It's actually sort of a portal activity that's leading to other things. So as I develop the craft and as I develop my practice, other opportunities are coming in and it's sort of like there's a there's sort of an art wing happening now and there's like a professional development wing where other esoteric practitioners are starting to come to me and ask me how I've done this for seven years and you know like how it's lasted um so this particular one because it came through in such a clear and clean waking vision. It wasn't my idea that I put upon myself. So most of my other jobs, most of my other adventures, most of my other outsider activities have been like, I read something or I had an experience. I went, Oh, I want to try that. I want to try to make that happen. Mm -hmm. This one couldn't be made to happen because I couldn't make this shit up if I tried. I, I mean, this is, it's so, it's so out there. I'm going to like people, I'm, people are going to ask me a question. I'm going to go to sleep and then I'm going to wake up and tell them my dreams. I couldn't make that up. So it was delivered to me in a waking vision. Like I saw it happening and I was like, that's kind of cool. And then when I stood up, I literally physically stood up from this waking vision, this 22nd waking vision. 
And in front of my eyes was the woke up knowing experience with Diana Valentine, pay here, schedule here. It was a website. I could see the photo shoot. I could see what I was wearing. I could see the light that I was in. I could see my hairstyle, which was different from the hairstyle that I had when I had the waking vision. Like in real life, it was different. I could see the outfit. I could see the clothes. I could see everything. And it was like a four page website. And it was so much more simple than my website. It was completely like it was, it had an effortless quality to it. And then, then I, by the time I got to the kitchen with this vision, I had a beta test designed and I decided that I was just going to do this for 14 days. And like, if, if I told the story to anyone and they said, Oh, I want that. I want you to dream for me for a question that I would just do it. And I would take notes. And at the end of two weeks, if it was working and if I was actually helping the people who were asking me questions, then I would charge somebody money for it. And so I did that. And within five weeks, I had a website and I was making money and people were hiring me. And I, I've never in my life started a business that was so easy, so clear, and that I was good at. Like, I'm just good at it. I'm really good at it. And I, it seems to really help people. Like, you know, fuck. Mm-hmm. How do you? That's really what happened. So yeah. Like, like that. So prior to this waking vision that you just described and embracing, because it sounds like you got this vision and embraced that this was at least a direction to experiment with, what or how would you categorize this, like this type of work in your life previous to that? Like, was this something that you felt like you always had a connection to dreaming or to being in this, like you said, like more like mystic Oracle space? Like, was it, did this feel, I guess I'm asking like, did this feel like a complete shock or departure when this happened? It didn't feel like a complete shock or departure because I've always had very cinematic dreams. Um, and I've always, I have, I have worked hard to educate my intuition and to become familiar with it. So I know the difference between guessing at something and having a good sense that I should go down another path. So for instance, even previous work with clients before Woke Up Knowing came through, I was doing coaching work, professional development, all kinds of small business advising kind of things. And I would sometimes just something would come out of left field or what seemed like left field and it would be right on point, you know? So I learned how to not edit myself when I would have a thought that seemed like a non sequitur. Mm -hmm. And so I, and I call, I now call them indicators, right? So that when I would hear an indicator, I would just, I had to teach myself to say it out loud because it was often not, what we were talking about or not on topic. Or for example, one time I was in a situation where I said something that kind of came out of left field and I knew it had to be said and it was connected to a dream that I had. This is way before woke up or a couple years before woke up knowing maybe five or six or something. And I said something and the executive VP that I was working with at the time had the whole room cleared and called in the general counsel of a very large multinational corporation that I was working for, I was, I was doing an, a training for, and he, and he's like, don't speak, don't say anything else. And I, we waited and it took, it takes a while to get a general counsel to like show up in a conference room on another part of the campus, you know, whatever. So I'm sitting there freaking out. I have no idea what's going on. And the, and the 
um, VP says, how did, once the lawyers got there and I re-signed all the NDAs and re-signed all the paperwork that I had to sign to get this fucking job, which was a terrible job for me, by the way. Um, and he said, how did you know about this project? You just asked me about this project. How did you know about it? And he said, three people in the world know about it and two of them are in this room. And I said, I was just making small talk. (laughs) I just, I just had this idea. I had a dream this morning and it seemed like it connected to the group and we were, we were having like a little tea break. And I just casually asked him like, what do you, what do you think, you know, what do you think about this? And it was like, and so that day, I mean, I was freaking out. I thought they were going to sue me. I, th- I, w- I was really like beside myself. And it took me like two days to recover from that. It was so upsetting. And finally, at the end of the meeting, the, the lawyer was like, she couldn't have known, dude. She's totally not connected to anybody. She doesn't have any other clients who are our competitors. Like there's, I think it's a fluke. And I was like, it's a total fluke. I don't, I, you know, so they paid out that contract. I did not go back and work with them. And after that, I was like, okay, something's up. Like something's up. Like I knew something I shouldn't have known in that room. Maybe I should keep my mouth shut. And hmm. first of all, and learn how to distinguish what needs to be said when. So I just started practicing, kind of just practicing like, okay, if I, if I have a big, big smart idea maybe I should ask somebody would you like some input on that (laughs) you know or I have a really weird idea I don't know if it's connected or not but so I started sort of working up scripts like that but yeah so think so things psychic adventure things had been happening for a long time and when I was a kid I was pretty plugged in as well I had um like a lot of my Psychic connections would be um, like physical. So I would get sick, but it would be somebody else's illness. Like I would feel a pain and I would say, we have to call so-and-so. And they had just like twisted their ankle like two minutes before. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Things like that. And little kids are fucking tuned the fuck in. They know how to do that stuff. They know how to do this stuff that we pine for as adults. They just do it without even thinking about it because i think we're wired like that anyway it's so very long-winded no it's it's fantastic i could listen to you tell stories all day this is amazing so one of the things you said that i wanted to circle back to you said that um you got to the point where you started to more intentionally develop your intuition what did that look like because i feel like intuition is one of those words that's thrown around a lot whether it's sort of in the context of like follow your heart follow your intuition and i mean we i want to talk to you about that too but i guess before we get to that like, what does that even mean to develop your intuition? Be, like, how do, you, how do you do that? Or how did you do yeah, that? Yeah, I, it's like anything else. You'd like sort of develop drills, <laughs> you know, like if you're trying to build endurance and you're training for something like you train for things, somebody has studied the most efficient way to do that, to fuel your body, to recover, to, um, what materials are not going to chafe you. Like somebody's done all that research, right? And it's in, it informs your training methodology. Is that correct? Yeah, sure. Right? So you're not just out there like fucking winging it and a pair of Tevas, you right, know? Right, yeah. So um, similarly, I think there's been a, there, 
most of the people who I know who do intuitive arts or esoteric arts have like a school of training. Like they have a, they have books that they've read. They have a master or a teacher or a guide or something. I happen to be like without those things in a certain way, right? In a certain way. In another way, if I look back at my history and the people who've guided me and the people who've nudged me to the left or to the right, or if I look at um, what has inspired me to make some of the best decisions of my life, if I go back and un unravel those just a little bit more carefully, I will notice in every one of those cases that there were indicators of some kind, whether it was a person or a book I read or a movie I watched or what, or a, or a totally um, self-destructive habit, (laughs) for example, those are all indicators. And if I look back at all the tremendous experiences that I've had in the world there were indicators that I actually sniffed out and I followed whether I was aware of it or not. Like I was like, Ooh, turning left here, you know? Mm -hmm. But if I then try to experiment with those today, so if I, so if I can stipulate that indicators are something that are useful, if I can, um, if I can tell you what the indicators were with hindsight, then hypothetically, again, remember, this is the empiricist in me. I created a set of experiments to try to see if I could identify indicators while they were happening. Interesting. Can you give me some examples or an example? Um, yeah. So I was living in New York City, and it was totally overwhelming for me psychically. I did not have any of the tools I have now to like keep myself in one piece while I'm like spending half my time on the astral plane and then coming back into my body to like teach a class at a university. Like it's crazy. The, the like time travel shifty stuff that goes on. Right. So in order to be able to make those transitions, I, I watch for indicators. So with hindsight, I looked at my trip, I looked at my move to California, right? So I was living in New York. It was winter. It was December and winter. I had a dream that I was moving. So when I woke up that morning, I started packing and I started purging things. I started getting rid of things. I started putting things in boxes. Okay. These things I don't have to ever, I don't have to see again for 10 years. I'm going to ask my mom if I can store these boxes at her place. Uh, these are the things that I want with me all the time. So those went into like luggage and, um, yeah. So I literally spent like a week packing or purging or whatever you want to look at organizing, but I was really packing. And I then, when I was done packing, which is about, I don't know, a week later, ran into a friend of mine from high school on the street who I had not seen since we graduated from high school. So this would have been 12, 13 years later, 12 years later, maybe. Um, I ran into her on the street in New York. We had lunch. She said, what are you doing? I said, I think I'm moving. And she said, where are you moving? (laughs) I said, I don't know. Is California weird? It's the middle of winter. Like, where can I pick that's like a warm place? And she goes, really? Oh, well, what are you going to do? And I said, I don't know. I just, I packed. So I I figure I can like go and explore. And so she said, well, we have a house in Santa Monica. Do you want to like house it for us for a couple months? Because we're working on a movie and we tried to find a house sitter and we couldn't find one. And it'd be really convenient for us. 
And I said, sure. And so she took out her key ring, took the <laughs> keys off the ring and passed them to me and said, when do you want to go? And I was like, I don't know, before my birthday, my 30th birthday was coming up in January. And I was like, I don't know, <laughs> how about two weeks? And she's like, great. And I figured I would come out here and spend a few weeks or a month or something and just kind of be on vacation. Like I wasn't really thinking I was going to move here. Well, you know, three months later, I had rented an apartment and sent for the rest of my stuff, which was all neatly packed and ready to go. (laughs) (laughs) So, okay. So I take, I took that experience, which I knew was like a, a, some kind of like, cosmic gift of some kind. I, I knew that, right? Even when it was happening, I knew that this was like something big and magical was happening. But until 10 years after that, or 12 years after that, when I actually said, okay, let me look at some magical experiences in my life and try to see if I can find the indicators and see if I can either sense how I felt at the time or get the smell of them or get the frequency of them or somehow measure those indicators so that if I was on top of one right now, I would know to pay attention to it because I get a lot of data comes through my download, my dreams, my downloads. I'm reading a lot. I'm reading client work a lot of ushered a lot of books out into the world, supporting people and writing books. I read a lot of my my um, students' stories, my student experiences at the community college. You know, so I have a lot of data now that I didn't really have to deal with before. So I need even more discernment to be able to tell the difference between things that are actionable or things that are, you know, just docu- just document them or things that I should just let pass by. Because otherwise I would be fucking like a Jack Russell Terrier in a room full right. of tennis balls all the time. I wouldn't know what my ass from a hole in the wall. So I had to sort of look for the smells, the frequencies, the sounds, the things that were true indicators that were like, Diana, go to the left. Otherwise the dragon is going to eat you, mm-hmm. you know, or go to the right because there's gold over there. And you, you know, you, you're going to really like the people at this party, go to this party, for example. Um, and it's why I'm really good, for instance, at going into other people's situations. So I'm often called to be like, I, I got called recently to be in a boardroom of an organization where the chair, chairperson of the board asked me to come in and just sit in on a, basically like a six hour board meeting and then tell the person, what I thought was going on in the room, having no experience with the organization, no experience with any of the people. I'd met the person who hired me on the phone only. And I went and sat in, in this meeting and I'm able to really like see some things that, that other people can't see that are happening in the room. And so I don't say I, here's what I see in the room. I ask questions, Mm -hmm. but those are, that's the same thing. I'm monitoring indicators what are the indicators that this person is telling the truth, that this person is lined up, that this person is available for what you're saying, that this person is on your side, that this person isn't on your side? Like, I happen to be kind of good at that. So, but those are all monitoring indicators. So for me, the first line of educating your intuition or empowering or or refining your intuition or however you want to look at it. Like I know there are a lot of people who disagree with me. There are people who say you can't you you don't exert force on intuition. Intuition is like delivered by spirit and you don't act on spirit or like some people will say like they'll listen to me talking and they'll be like I believe in Jesus. 
therefore everything you're saying can't be done, <laughs> you know, and you're challenging, you're challenging Jesus here or whatever. I totally disagree because I think Jesus would be 100% down with like getting clear on what the truth is, <laughs> you know? Um, so yeah, so, so assessing the indicators, I think is the, this the number one thing that everybody can do, whether you have intuitive abilities or think you do or not, or whether you think you're a creative person or not, you can absolutely analyze what the indicators were that led you to a particular decision that was a good decision for you. And so that's where I would start. Yeah. And you, I, when I first said that, you know, the about the advice of like, follow your heart, follow your intuition, you made like a little groaning sound that made me want to return to it sounds like you don't love that advice that people throw around. I don't like it as a blanket. You should be able to know what your heart is telling you because it basically makes a bunch of us who are seekers or questioners or who like um, wrestle with our existential assignment on the planet makes us look like assholes. Mm -hmm. And I'm tired of being spirit shamed by people who are like, just, just trust yourself. I'm like, but I'm a fuck up, man. I do all kinds of things that are totally self-destructive, that are like bad decisions, bad investments. Like, I can't be trusted. So what are you telling me to trust myself? <laughs> you know? Yes. Instead, I want like an action plan. I want to fucking like get in there and see if I can figure out the flavor of my trust. What is the flavor of my trust? What is the flavor of my trustworthiness? What is the flavor of like, my capability. I'm not capable of everything. And don't fucking tell me I am. It's bullshit. Mm -hmm. Yeah, my issue with the like, and obviously, we're both referring to the kind of blanket, like, just, you know, trust yourself, follow your heart, all the platitudes, right? Like the things that could be on pretty Pinterest quote things. I feel like the thing that comes up for me or my resistance to that is okay, but how do you know what's intuition versus what's fear versus what's ego? And that's what you were, I think, sort of what you were just speaking to about the trustworthiness. Like, I have a hard time being like, well, am I saying this is my intuition because this is like just the direction that I want to go? Is this confirmation bias? Like, I get kind of muddied in that area. Well, and also we carry around a lot of other people's scripts and a lot of other people's ideas of what we're supposed to be doing. And again, it circles back to membership. How much of what we're doing has to do with making sure that we are safe and still have a spot, you know, mm -hmm. in the group or how much of it is about, you know, our reputation or what we've said we were going to do compared to like what we're doing. Um, you know, how much of it is about um, trying to check off a list that was made by some other motherfucker over the decades that says, here's what an X year old, insert man, woman, other identified non-binary human being is supposed to be doing on, th on this plane, in this city, at this time of, you know, whatever. It's just, it's, uh, so much of it is, is, is prefab identity. Mm-hmm. And I, it is really super offensive to me. Um, and, and there's no process. We don't, we don't get a process that, you know, I think about fourth grade is when I'd like to be working with most of my clients, <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. what happened to you when you were 10, Jesus Christ, you know, and like what happened with your sense of what the rules are, because that's when like seven, eight, nine, ten, 10, like th that's the age where like 
people are really concerned with the rules. Like, where do I fit in? How much power do I have? And what are the rules? And how can I get what I want? That it becomes really blossomy right around that time. Because it's like pre-violent individuation, but it's post like being physically grounded and like attached to your parents or attached to your caregivers or whatever that is. Like you start to like have like feelings, you start to like get really like, I mean, I think, you know, that's a time when you get very, there's a sensual thing that happens around that time, like that peri-adolescence thing. I think it's a ripe time for identity development and we don't spend nearly enough time, I think, learning how to really navigate that stuff at that age. We're usually doing it at like, earlier midlife crisis time when it's really important and when a bunch of people depend on you to be like in one piece you know mm-hmm. it's like yeah. a lot of pressure. and when it's hit some kind of like crisis tipping point that it's like oh now I have to try to deal with this yeah I mean you mentioned the the struggle of carrying around so many other people's scripts which makes me want to ask you for an example of one of those scripts or you know what you were mentioning like identities that people want to put on you or how you should behave that you've consciously opted out of like what's maybe a script that you were like I'm not going to follow this um you mean I'm not going to follow it to my detriment or I'm not going to follow it to my glory to your glory that's a good way of putting Um, it (laughs) yeah um I for sure this dreaming for a living you know it's like totally breaks so many rules Totally. And here's the thing. I want to just say to anybody out there who's like, feels like they're being called to do something really dicey or that breaks all the rules. I figured out how to make this super affordable. It is so much more affordable than my prior three businesses. I cannot even tell you how cheap it is to run my life right now. Mm -hmm. It's remarkable, but it took me about three years of deconstructing to figure out how to do it. I made it affordable so that it didn't put me in danger while I'm trying to do it. Okay. It's really important. I think some of the follow your heart things are really dicey and they, they, they feed the system that says you need to spend five to $7,000 doing something and you've got to invest. Otherwise you're not serious. And here's a, $25,000, whatever. And I'm not against any of those things if they're really, if they're really useful, but I do think that they're kind of built upon this, this shame cycle that says, if you, if you don't figure it's worth figuring this thing out, because you're going to figure it all out in this thing, but we don't have the tools and I don't think it should cost that much. And also I don't think it should cost that much to take a risk or to explore something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love that you brought up the financial side of the business. Cause I feel like it's uh, virtually impossible to have a good, honest conversation about any business without talking about money. And I think it's something that people often skirt around. And it's interesting to me to hear you say that this current iteration of your work is so much less costly to run than what you were doing previously. What do you attribute that to? Um, to financial crisis and being and being and feeling like I did not want money to be part of the decision making process of what art I was going to make. And um, for about three years, my business declined about 30% per year. And it was um, subsequent to uh, grief and a, a death in a family. And I was just prostrate on the floor and was like, I can't, I just can't, I couldn't travel the way I traveled before. I couldn't, I just, I wasn't, 
I wasn't fit for public consumption. I was like barely surviving. And in that process, of course, I, every bell and whistle of um, self-deprecation and self-flagellation came up like, you're a failure. You're not a good adult. What the fuck are you doing? You can't put that on a credit card. What do you, you know, whatever all that stuff is. And um, through that process, I realized, well, let me just try to address this money monkey finally, like in my life. And so I, I went through a few iterations of it, but one of the things that happened is after I did the sort of kindergarten version of like money management, like setting a budget for my personal life and my business, cause I'd had a budget for my business for, I don't know, 15, 17 years, however long I've been independent. And I had bookkeeping and I always did my taxes. I mean, I was like straight way above board, but personally I didn't, I didn't monitor money. I didn't like watch my spending. I just spent what I had basically and didn't really think too much about it. So I went through this very wackadoo process of like hiring a financial advisor and then getting like a, a another person when the financial advisor basically said, I don't have anything to say to you until you're making over a hundred grand a year. Hmm. Like they were just like done. They were like, here, buy this stuff from me. And then I don't really want to talk to you until you're making more money. And I was like, what the fuck? Then what are all the people out there who aren't making a cabillion dollars? What are we supposed to do? You know, this is like messed up. So then I like did my own self-education and I got to a point where I had been at or under budget, both personally and in my business for about seven months of an 18 month process. So it would be up and down. Like I, you know, have to have a car repair and it would fuck my budget up and then, you know, whatever things like that would happen where I didn't quite make the numbers every month. But something happened when I got to seven or eight months where I had a, I just had an epiphany and I was like, what if I'm actually okay? Like, I'm not rich. I'm not wealthy. I'm not, I'm actually not, I don't think, I don't consider myself fiscally responsible unless I really, like, have a buffer and, like, have, you know, I'm, you know, have some investments and have some way of making money that isn't me standing in a room or picking up a phone. So, I'm not quite there yet. But I realized I was actually okay. And even if I did exactly what I had done the previous seven months, like, I would be fine. I would be fine. And it was the first time in my life I really felt fine. Hmm. Like I felt okay. I mean, just imagine like saying I'm okay and really meaning it. Like, I don't know for you, but that's, it's not that common for me. Yeah, I I agree. (laughs) And and yet I feel like that's the common, like, how are you? Oh, I'm good. I'm fine. I'm okay. Like people say it all the time, but how often do you really mean like, oh, I'm okay. I hadn't, I hadn't meant it mm-hmm. for many, many long, long, long time. Really, I, I really couldn't remember when I felt fine. And w- certainly not where it re- related to money, <laughs> right? I mean, really, I was like, never fine where it related to money. So I had this epiphany and I was like, I'm fine. And then I th- the very next thought was, well, if you're fine, then what do you want to do? Hmm. You know? What do you, what do you, what do you, what would you like to occupy yourself with if you're actually fine? And if really you are stable and you've been very responsible and really I've been responsible most of my life. It's just that I've been responsible to the tune of breaking even, (laughs) right? It's never been, you know, there's never, you always have to keep going. And I thought if I'm okay, 
And keep in mind, everybody listening, I'm okay meant that if I made the same exact amount of money the following month, I would be able to pay all my bills. Not like I'm okay, like I can go, you know, buy shoes in Spain or, you know, and like fuck it, fuck off, you know? Mm-hmm. So um, that's not one of my interests, by the way. I don't know why I gave that example. Um, and the very next thought was dream around the world. I want to do woke up knowing. I want to do it full time. I want to enjoy it. I want to relax about it. I want it to be something that I don't have to do, but that I really, really dig. And so that was last April of 2017, the epiphany. And so I straight armed the kitchen table, took down my prior my prior website in, I don't know, May or something. And then by July, I had the new website up. I had um, radically changed my expenses around my business and like got rid of all kinds of things that I wasn't even using and um, got my operating budget to under $200 a month, not including travel, um, which usually somebody else is paying for uh, when I travel to dream. And, um, Yeah. And then everything got a lot fucking easier and I didn't have this high expectation and I didn't have this like, okay, you got to hit the $10,000 mark every month. And like, it just all, all that bullshit went away. And then I just, my work amplified, like you cannot fucking believe my psychic spidey senses, like just, it was like they were on acid. I mean, Mm. the, the next day, And I thought I was really good at it before then, (laughs) you know, I was like, I'm great, you know, but this was like a complete other thing. So again, an indicator, I, I knew that even though it was an indirect way to amplify my work, I knew I had to tidy up my money house. And so I just started doing it. I don't think I'm done with that work at all, but it had a huge influence. Yeah, there's, I I know this isn't exactly what you said, but what I'm like hearing and feeling from everything that you just shared is this idea that like, if we're honest about it, we do know what the things are that are kind of like keeping us stuck or dragging us down or the things we don't want to look at, whether that's money or, you know, any other area and that you don't necessarily know what paying attention to that, or like you said, cleaning it up, clearing it up, what sort of domino effect that's going to have, but it's usually something and it's usually something positive. Yeah, yeah. And and it's and it's usually in the like money, sex, power, belonging categories are pretty yeah. good places to I mean, start. Isn't that what everything's about? <laughs> like those things that you just mentioned. <laughs> like it's like what almost everything is about. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So another money question a little bit more specific, and I think um this is of interest, I mean, I think for self-employed people in general, particularly those who work in a more maybe intuitive space like you do, any advice for others in a similar field or industry who are struggling to decide on a dollar amount to charge for their work? Like, how did you come to the pricing for your current offerings? Well, thankfully, you know, I have this tool that I use. So I, I actually, when Woke Up Knowing came through, it came through with its own pricing in 2011. And um, like when I visioned the website, like it, the prices were there. They were on the, you know, screen in front of my eyeballs or the whatever the cosmic screen in front of my eyeballs so they came through with a price and when I um sort of revitalized the work last year um I just added like 30 percent to everything because that seemed reasonable after a seven-year period Mm -hmm. (laughs) like it seemed like oh the market will generally it will bear that um so 
that's kind of how I went into it. One of the things that I think you can do it in a bunch of different ways. You can reverse engineer it, right? So you can go from what you need to survive because most of us, um, our, our, it isn't our main, is there, isn't our only source of income, like our calling, Right. Right. So we, we have to look at it in a in a breadth way. And and a lot and a lot of people have support. Like some people have a spouse or they have, you know, they have funding from other places. So you gotta like separate your survival from your craft if you can. Okay, if you can. Not all of us can do that. Some of us are really reliant on we have the energy and we have the intention and we have the skill to do this one thing and this one thing has to help us survive. I think that's an extremely rare case. Some of us might feel like that, but generally speaking, most of us have the option of working at Starbucks or doing something else for our health insurance and our income if we if we're pressed to it. So I would separate those things and then I would look at what, you know, what what your lifestyle is and what your what's has to be kept, you know, in your lifestyle. Like my lifestyle is very sparse. And I have really low overhead for what I want to do. So I don't have a lot of bells and whistles. I don't need them. Um, I think that a lot of people really fall into the traps of like, I have to have a website. I have to have a shopping cart. I have to make products. I have to, like, there's all these have tos. So analyze some of those. I would look at some of those and um, really write down on paper, like what things cost. You might find that you can do your work at a much lower cost than, you know, cost to the consumer than you need, than you, you think that you do. Um, I think sometimes people just look at someone else's site who's doing something like they're doing and just like set their rates like someone else does. But I think that's problematic for, you know, the main reason is we don't really know why they set their prices the way that they did. And if it's just some blanket industry standard, I don't know. I don't know that that's a way to live. If it's sustainable for you, great. But I don't know. It's a, it's, it's like a, it's like a bigger question than you're asking me. I can't really answer it like in a succinct way that applies to everybody who's listening. Yeah. But I mean, and again, I'm never looking for a capital A answer. I'm yeah. more just interested and in everything that you just shared, I think is both true and insightful and never going to be the whole answer because that doesn't exist. Like there's a reason that that's something that people struggle with, right? Because if you had like the magic solution to exactly how to price everything in this like perfect way, like, okay, then we'd be right. like gajillionaires, right? So I think that just, I, it's interesting to me to hear how someone else thinks through something that doesn't have a roadmap, if that makes sense. Well, and I think that also people don't ever, they don't analyze their own capacity for work. What do you mean? Like I have a really high capacity for work because I've been doing it for a long time. I know what it takes. I know how many immersions, and that's like a 24 hour dream experience with one person. You know, I know how many of those I can do a month. I know how many um, like off menu meeting facilitations because I kind of do a couple things that are like not on my website, but that I'm known for and I don't really want to advertise because I'd rather have people recommend their colleagues or friends who they're pre-screening them for me. I don't really want to deal with tire kickers on a couple of things that I do. Um, and it's why, and, and I know that I can do virtually an unlimited number 
of um, ask an Oracle um, quick little phone calls or ask an Oracle wide open calls. Like I can do those until the cows come home. I could do 10 of those a day effortlessly, effortlessly. But it took me a while to figure that out. Because the way I used to do things before is that half hour or hour that I would spend with somebody on a on a call that solved some kind of discrete thing or or aired out a problem or kind of worked through some ideas, that used to actually take me two hours of prep, the hour of phone call, and two hours afterwards to like come down, come back into my body, fix the recording edit my notes, send them an email, then send them follow-up. So actually one hour was really five hours of work. Mm -hmm. So right now the way that I set it up, I don't fucking record anything. I don't send anybody notes. I hardly even follow up. Every once in a while I'll follow up with somebody because I find them interesting and I want to know what happened from our session, right? Mm -hmm. So I literally am picking up the phone, hanging up the phone, and I'm done working. Like that's never happened in my whole life. So see, then my hourly rate stays high. But that took a shit ton of experience to get there. It wasn't just out of the gate like, oh, I'm not going to record anything and I'm not going to call anybody back and I'm not going to like, that's a status thing really for me. Yeah. And it's also, (laughs) I mean, a a product of, I would assume like experimentation and figuring out what works and what's actually necessary. Like it's, it's, I think easy when we're starting out to assume something that a client or a customer needs. And then through practice, you're like, well, do they actually need these notes or do they actually need, you know, that type of stuff that you can only get through the experience of doing it? Well, yeah. And I think that there's all of this, um, you know, even, even our friend Alex is like, a, she's a gold medalist at this. She's a huge fan of over-delivering. She loves doing it. She loves making everything like extra beautiful and extra, extra, extra. You know, she likes giving that extra like little oomph at the end of something or like, hey, I know you asked me for one of these, but I just wrote three of them because I thought, why not? You mm-hmm. know what I mean? She's, she's really great at that. And she does it in a very elegant way. And I think that that's romanticized in service businesses to over-deliver, over-deliver, over-deliver. Well, here's the thing. Um, for for instance, for, for Alexandra, she is a natural at it. She works at it. She has really honed it. She trains regularly in over-delivering. She's very, very good at it. And it resonates with who she is. It yeah. fits her brand. It fits her personality. It's it's something that she, if she, if she she would do no matter what, no matter what her hourly rate was, she would do that. Um, for me, I am delivering. I am. You are consulting a cosmic worker. I am working very hard for you when I'm available for you. And P.S. And by the way, from the time you pay me. You're in my field, my, my field of consciousness. So whether you realize it or not, I am significantly over-delivering to what you think you're asking for, which is a 24-minute, hi, how are you, listen to listen to this and give me your opinion. I'm actually doing that. And I had to ratify my own work for myself versus 
I'm not delivering a product, which then someone else is measuring in a, yeah. in a, in a kind of way. So I had to really shift my consciousness around what over delivering was going to mean for me. Um, and also I had to really, when I did my assessments, my logistical investment in a single call was totally inappropriate. I was recording, I was pre-recording, I was sending a pre-email, I was doing this, I was doing that, I was doing all this like customization that had to happen for every single person. And I was making like, I don't know, like $7 an hour on some shit. Mm -hmm. That is inappropriate for a grown ass woman who lives in Southern Cal in Santa Monica, California, where the average rent of my apartment is $3,300 a month, I have no business making $7 an hour doing anything. That's mm -hmm. ridiculous. So, yeah. So, I mean, you know, get, get straight. And if you, if, if you don't know, if you really don't have any idea how to do this, anybody who's listening, like, let someone help you. Like, yeah. write, me, write me an email, send me a text. Like, I have a text list. I don't have an email list anymore. But, like, ask somebody don't try to just follow somebody else's fucking template business here's how to do it and you have to start at minimum at 150 dollars an hour to do whatever it's all made up it's all, the game of money is made up but the real life living of money is not made up so yeah. ask somebody get some help yeah that's so 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 well said right we can say it's all made up and also it has real consequences in our lives right it's like a both and so yeah get some help i love it I want to circle back a little bit. Um, I'm really grateful that you are willing to talk about the business side of what you do, because I think that's always interesting and always, um, I don't know, kind of like a thing that sometimes people keep behind the scenes. But something about your work or what I am maybe, maybe correctly, maybe not, you can correct me if I'm wrong, interpreting as the heart of your work. It seems like so much of what you do revolves around this idea of questions that clients ask you questions, you dream for them and you're interpreting that. The example you gave of sitting in the boardroom and looking at indicators and seeing what's happening in the room and then reflecting back questions. And as someone who personally, I'm very interested in asking ourselves questions, just asking better questions. I'm curious on your thoughts about what you think that we, we meaning like all of us, everyone, like what we can do to ask better questions. Does that make sense? Yes. I love talking about questions and it's really, it is the core of my work. So no matter what we're doing, if we're doing an immersion, if we're, if I'm doing an Oracle in residence, it's at, for 10 people at a retreat for five days. It's always the same. What, what, what is your question? What, what do you really want to work on? So there's a difference between what's your question and what do you want to work on? So for me, you have to be available to work on the thing. So I have people ask me questions fairly often where they, the, it, it is a really big and important question but they have no intention of actually working on it. They just want somebody to give their opinion and then they're going to let it sit there for a while. Those are really uninteresting to me because I'm not your fucking show pony. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So, and I can, I can hear and see, smell that coming a mile away. So, th so that's a different category of question. That's like hobbyist question. That's like, Oh, I'm going to just ask a really hard question and like, but then not do something with it. So, and and that I think is very telling and it's also helpful for the person to know, yeah, that's a question that you don't have any intention on working on. So I'm going to reject it and I'm going to ask you for another one. <laughs> so that's one thing that happens. Another thing that happens, which is way more common is that there are basically, I have, I have 
decided this and I, I might change this in my life. I'm not completely, um, I'm not fixed on this, but this has been helpful to me and helpful to clients is that there's a, a, a wrong question. And the wrong question is the question that when you say it or when you write it or when you think it, it makes you feel like a piece of shit. The question itself abuses you. The question itself estranges you from what's true for you. The question itself is like pulling the asshole card and it trumps every other question and it stops the conversation. It's not actually answerable. The question is just punishment with a question mark at the end of it. Okay. Mm -hmm. Everybody on is listening has got to know what that is. Whatever those questions are that you ruminate in your head, if I could only answer this, if they make you feel like shit, just asking them, it's the wrong question. And you're, you're, you're hanging out on the surface and you're saying like, it's the zit's fault on my face, but you're not actually looking at your nutrition or what, or how much water you drank or whether you, you know, you might have actual like need to see a doctor and have like cysts or, you know what I mean? You're like saying the zit is the problem. Why do I have this zit? Makes you feel like shit, right? Mm -hmm. The real, the, the right question, which is, I put it in quotation marks, the socially right question or the socially acceptable question is the question that if you asked it in a room, everybody around the room would go, oh yeah, that's a good question. That's an important question. Everybody should have that question. How much money should I make? How can I charge more? Like all that stuff is the socially acceptable right questions. Now, those questions can get you somewhere because they can get you membership. They can get other people approving of you. They can get you feeling like self-soothed because you've answered like the right question that everybody says is the right question. But they only, you when you answer those, you only answer that question. Right. So they're very limited and they're also like really based on like social convention approval and self approval based on those social conventions. The real questions, which is where you and I like to hang out, the real questions are the questions that help you answer other questions. They're the questions that help you orient to who you are and your identity. They're the questions that help you know the difference between right and wrong. They're the questions that help you, that have helped people devote their lives to social causes. They're the questions like, how can I become more trustworthy? How can I form a loving and peaceful relationship with myself or with another person? Um, How do I find out more information or what do I need to know in order to get more clear on this issue in my life? Like those to me are real questions. Those are questions that are generative. They help you answer other questions. They don't make you feel like a pile of shit when you ask them. They're curious. They're open. They expand your capacity to do or know something. They um, help you identify obstacles instead of have a violent approach. I I find that often the wrong question and the right kinds of questions, those to me often um, support Um, violence against ourselves or against other people. They often celebrate domination um, or winning or competitiveness and an an, an unhealthy competitiveness. I think that the wrong and right questions sort of hang out in that field. Whereas the real questions tend to be more existential, more spiritual, more about identity development and more um, like deeply rooted in an analysis of what we uh, truly find important. I love those three categorizations. 
can you share if you feel comfortable a real question that you are asking yourself right now? Yes. Um, what do I need to know to forge a loving and peaceful relationship <laughs> with money? Because <laughs> I'm looking at it. It's a huge question that's hanging on my wall that I've been dreaming into for the last two weeks. Yeah, for yeah. myself. I feel like the real questions, like it like feels like truth when we hear them. And also that those can be the scary questions because there is no simple answer. Maybe. Well, I don't know. I mean, I've come up with kind of a really good list so far. You know, like, so I've been working on this. I, I dated it May 6th. So that's when I first asked the question. So I guess it's been three weeks. And the question is, what do I need to know to forge a loving and peaceful relationship with money? So some of the things that have come through that are, for example, one came through early on the process that was, what are some relationship capacities that mimic or mirror my money challenges. Hmm. So for example, um, I often have purchasers remorse. Do you ever have that? Yeah, sure. You buy something and then you're like, oh shit. And then, then I, what my thing is, is I'll like leave it in the package or I'll leave it in the car with the receipt for like a while until I can actually allow myself to have it. So that's like something that I think is a non-peaceful and loving relationship with money. There's something that happens when I purchase something that gets me all bent out of shape. And I, I, I haven't been able to intellectualize it. I haven't been able to solve it above the eyebrows. But when I dreamt into it and then I was given this other question about what are some relationships that might mimic my money challenges, that was the first one that came to my mind. So I was like, okay, buyer's remorse. Where does that come in in terms of relationships? And one of the ways it comes in in relationships is like I'm super enthusiastic. I like volunteering for things. I like supporting people. And I often overcommit or overoffer support. So like, oh, my God, I'll totally help you move this weekend. I don't even know you. I'll help you move, right? So then I get home and I'm like, oh, shit totally have committers remorse, right? <laughs> That's like, so well said. Yes, yes. Uh -huh. I've committed my I've committed my resource in whatever form. I think of money as energetic commerce. So I've committed I've committed an act of energetic commerce by offering something to someone that I really didn't I after the fact I'm like I don't want to buy that experience of helping them move their apartment. Why did I buy that? I want to return that. How can I return that, right? And so I started to list all the relationship experiences or capacities that mimic money challenges. So I made one column of money challenges and then I made one column that if I, if I translated it or I transmuted it into relationships, where else do I do that? Where else do I have remorse? Where else do I have like overspending, for instance, or where else do I have like, you know, I have spontaneous, like there are things I spend spontaneous money on and mostly it's art. Or like donating something to somebody's cause. But I rarely spontaneously spend money on something that directly serves my needs. <laughs> like I'll wait two months to buy something I actually need. Mm -hmm. But I'll like buy art on the street from someone. So I just started listing those. I mean, that's an amazing, that's an amazing discovery. And I don't know that I would have made that connection had I not written this question on the wall and really gotten down to the real question. Cause the wrong question is why am I not fucking swimming in money? Yeah. Right. 
Like everybody who's ever known me has been like, you are just money. You're so smart. You're so fast. You're so this, you're so that. Your astrological chart says you're going to have no problem with money. You're this, this, that. Like every confirmation that I should be just filthy rich, right? The wrong question is, why don't I have more money? Yeah, right. Or like, what's wrong with me that I can't get this together or something in that vein? Yeah. The right question is, how do I make more money with my business? The real question is, what do I need to know to forge a loving and peaceful relationship with money? Because for me, I know that if I have a loving and peaceful relationship, I'm a fucking the best girlfriend ever. I am amazing. I can love you all the way to your cells. So I know that if I'm having a loving and peaceful relationship with money, that's going to be a fucking good thing. That's going to be like blowjobs for everybody. And everybody is like coming all the time, even while they're like doing mundane things. Like it's going to be fucking off the chain, amazing party time, excellent, sustainable, delicious, long-term, fully committed with little pokes and nudges that are everybody knows about that are delightful in between. Like it's going to be, a, it's going to be on. And I mean, in a big way, not just like superficially, like a fucking crush. I don't want to have a crush on money. I want to have a loving, peaceful relationship with money. I want to have a long-term committed, fucking profitable, delicious, excited to look at my numbers relationship with money. I want to have like looking at my monthly books be like unwrapping new underwear or like undressing a partner and you find a little surprise for you like somewhere in the process. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know what you would find, like a hard candy under somebody's dick. I don't know what you would find. <laughs> as a, but like, like some like little treasure that you're like, yay, you know? Oh my God, somebody paid me back that loan that I gave them three years ago. How nice was that? I got $300 more this month. You know what I mean? I want to be like that. And I'm so not there yet. I also want to be like that. Everything that you just said, yeah. I want, it's my wet dream. I want it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I want to fucking be excited to get home and open up Excel to my budget and be like, oh, I can't wait to add that $3.72 of candy I just bought to my budget. So I think it's really interesting to talk to someone who's in the middle of something. Like, I think this would be a different conversation if, you know, let's say you had answered this question for yourself about this relationship with money three years ago, five years ago, and you were telling the story in hindsight. Like, But the fact that you even just said, I'm not there yet. You have a very clear vision. You're able to, in a delicious way, describe what it is that you want and make it clear to me that I want the same thing. But so like, what does it look like? Because I think this is where things get messy and more interesting. Like, what is it look like to live through that question for you? Like, what are you doing in service of that question? I cry a lot. I struggle with having things that I want. I, I ask myself, I, I like pray. I ask myself, like, why are you so upset about this money thing? Like I have an upcoming um, project that I'm working on that um, is a, beautiful invitation. I'm so excited to do it, but it's going to cost me $732. At least that's the standing budget right now. $732 that I had not planned on spending. And that doesn't have, it doesn't have an automatic return. So a lot of the things I'm doing now is I'm really keeping myself to things like activities that make money while I'm doing them. So I'm okay with spending money, let's say traveling somewhere if there's, I'm going to make money while I'm there. Right. So, and this one doesn't, this has no, this is no return on investment in the way that 
things on paper often do. And and again, we lock ourselves into rules, right? So I made this set of rules that are continuously having to be bent because real life doesn't necessarily follow a linear rule. And right, my financial advisor or other people who do well with money, they fall, they set a rule and that's it. They mm-hmm. don't fucking get on the plane unless they're making money, right? But I don't want to live like that. Again, I want a loving and peaceful relationship. I don't want a rigorous, you can't have sex because it's not Wednesday at 7 p.m. relationship with money. That doesn't work for me. It's not going to last. We are not going to be like, I'm not going to, I'm not down for that. So it's messy. It's emotional. I mean, I had a massive meltdown yesterday because I had to make a decision about spending money on something. And I was like, really beside myself. And it took a friend of mine saying, what are you really upset about? Like, is it the money? Do you know what I mean? Like, Mm -hmm. I'm so used to freaking out about money that I was like, I don't think it's the money. And she said, well, what is it? And I said, I think that this project is more important to me than a bunch of projects that I've worked on before. And so spending the money and making the decision about like doing it means I'm really doing it. And it makes me feel like I'm, it's the night before the talent show and I just I'm fucking can't do it. You know what I mean? I'm, yeah. I'm freaked out. And so as a 49-year-old woman to be having like performance anxiety that goes way beyond performance anxiety, it goes to belonging anxiety and like being called forward to something that I've dreamt about for decades. I mean, since I was 14 or 15 years old, I'm going to do something that I have known I was supposed to be doing. And that spending of that hundred and whatever, it's like $112 or something. It like signified that I'm doing this thing. And I think that for a lot of us, we don't know the difference between we're freaking out because we're failures or we're freaking out because we're fucking doing the thing. Oh my God. That's so well said. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's being able to like parse out the difference between those two things. But it goes back to what we were talking about earlier about educating your intuition and, and starting to note the flavor and frequency of your freak out. So I was crying in my car and just like sobbing, like I can't make myself cry when I need to cry. Right. But like when I'm like out in goddamn public in front of a bunch of strangers, I can like burst into tears and drop of a hat. So I'm crying in my car and I'm driving and I'm going, what the fuck, man? Are you just a massive fuck up? Like it just, it was just like whatever asshole card stuff you could pull. I was pulling, 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 pulling. And then when my friend asked me the question, is it really about the money? Cause I made it all about the money. I don't have it. I'm freaking out. It's not in my budget. It's $112. And where am I going to account for it? And now I can't like fucking do whatever it is that's on my budget that costs $112. It's the first thing I thought of to like, I have to cut that to make room for this. Right. And meanwhile, it's May 30th. Right. So I'm trying to hit this May number (laughs) and I'm like failing. Right. And she said, is it the money? And I was like, no. And I'm like, oh, fuck. Okay. What is it? And then I had to really sit with it for a while. You know, I wanted to make it be something 
you know, like, oh, maybe like I'm just being called up to do higher. It's like, yeah, it is that. But really, it's that you're fucking, you're going to go do the thing. Mm-hmm. And and I'm scared shitless, you know, I'm scared I'm going to fail. I'm scared it's not going to work out. Maybe I won't be good at it. Maybe I'll get there and I won't be able, I won't be able to remember, like, oh my God. <laughs> Which is hilarious because like, it's, that's literally never happened. It could happen, but it's never happened in my, in my seven years of doing this, it's never happened. And especially not in a seven day experience. Like I'm going to remember some dream sometime. You know, yeah, but all that is bullshit. It's all made up because it's really about the capacity and it's really about belonging and it's really about my identity. It's about my being able to be okay with being myself and really being an artist and 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 deciding to like fucking go do this epic thing that I don't know if I'm ready for. And you can't know till you're fucking out there and you're freaking out and everything is going wrong. you can't you can't be ready. You just have to go show up. And, and, and when in doubt, like fucking call 911. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, and what you just said, I feel like it's such a beautiful tie back to the first thing that we were talking about, this idea of belonging and identity and all of it. Yeah. It's so good. Um, so before we start to wrap up, is there anything either about your work or anything else in general that we haven't gotten to that you would love to discuss or anything else you want to share? I don't want to wrap up. I, I mean, me either. I want to talk to you all day. Um, <laughs> um, well, one thing that actually I'd really like to talk about is um, I'd like to just ask you a question or two. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So one of the things that I like to think about a lot is friendships. And I have this idea, um, this like treatment for a book called Making Friend, F- Making Friends for Grownups. And in fact, um, Randy Buckley and I have collaborated on a couple conversations about friendships that have been kind of fun. I want to ask you, like, if you had sort of three tenets of behavior that you you employ in maintaining, making and maintaining your grown up friendships, whether they're new friendships or old friendships. What are the three things that you kind of lean on to make that work for you? I love this question, especially because this is actually a topic that comes up a lot, both on the show and in the community, this idea of how do you make friends as an adult? What does it look like when your friendships aren't based necessarily on the circumstantial convenience of we all live in the same dorm, right? That type of stuff. So I think um, I'm very interested in whatever comes out of it, you know, this book or this project that you're working on, because I think it's a really relatable topic. Um, Three things that I like, meaning like three things you think that I do well in friendships? Yeah, or three kind of rules or guidelines that you go by or three theories or three philosophies, any, any three things that are related to making friends. Yeah. Okay. So I'd say the first one, and this is something that I've started to focus on a lot in the last mm, maybe eight or nine months is in this idea of dating your friends. And I don't mean that in a romantic way, but that I think that we put so much emphasis and attention and time and energy and money towards our romantic life, whatever that looks like. And I'm trying to put that same energy toward my friendships. So the same way that I would put a lot 
of time into planning a really special date for my partner, doing that for friends, checking in the same way, the sweet notes, the making sure to ask about the things that are important to them, you know, dressing up when we go out or just like the kind of time and attention that I think is more socially acceptable to put towards romance, to put that towards friendships. Um, And I have seen a really profound return on the strength of the relationships since starting to do that. So Mm -hmm. that's the first thing that comes to mind. Um, The second one for me, I would say, is to accept the different types of friendships or the different flavors of friendships, meaning I have some friends who I care about deeply. We don't live in the same place. We maybe don't even live anywhere near the same time zone. And so we're just not in each other's everyday lives versus the friends that I literally text and talk to every single day and that there's room in my life for both of those relationships, but that they're going to operate differently. And what if that's okay? Um, Mm -hmm. I used to put a lot of pressure on, well, they all need to be best friends and you know, we need to, you know what I mean? Like that type of thing. (laughs) That if it really, it's it's almost like allowing each relationship to take whatever its organic and natural shape is instead of fitting it into a cookie cutter of what I think a friendship is supposed to look like. Mm. Um, That it's, you know, if we only talk every quarter or we see each other once a year and when we do, it feels like a beautiful and really worthwhile. Why am I trying to make that relationship into something that it's not instead of just like accepting for it for what it is? Mm -hmm. Um, I'd say that's the second one. Um, the third one, hmm, I don't know that I can articulate this as well, but it's something in the vein of the importance of showing up. Um, I think especially with the sort of like texting social media, you know, which are both great ways to keep up with people. Um, it can get easy to feel like we're showing up without actually showing up. And there's no substitute for really being there for someone. Um, and, you know, clearing your schedule, driving the six hours, doing what, like whatever showing up looks like in right. that relationship, you know, oh, they had their meeting with their boss about whether or not they're going to get a raise. Like, am I texting after? Like, am I taking them out to celebrate when that goes well, you know, just like showing right. up. Um, and not only, I think it's it's easy to show up for the big things, right? Like a wedding or a death or something like that. But the importance of showing up just for like the day-to-day realities of what it is to be human. Um, so yeah, those are the three things that I think I would say. I didn't realize that I had so much to say about that. <laughs> so you asked that question. I like it. I thought that was great. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. I'm interested to see what comes from that project for you. Yeah, it's going the conversations that I'm having and I really love the little interview or conversation series I did with with Randy they're on her site randybuckley.com I can send you the link if you want yeah totally um so uh, are you open to answering seven questions yeah. To oh yeah totally I was just voicing what my first reaction was and that I was being petulant not that not that I was saying I didn't want to do it I was just like ah rapid fire questions boo um but yeah of course I'm totally getting this to it <laughs> well, but I'm interested I'm actually interested in like what do you think that resistance is about oh just that I'm a brat and I hate formulaic things and I just, like <laughs> don't, I don't want to answer the same questions anybody else answered and I'm just I'm I'm just a judgy bitch and that's what it's about. And I find that when I ventilate those little things, um, I just release them right away. So that's why I just was like, ah, no, I, right, I, I love it. I, I like you so much. Um, okay. So the first question, I mean, is sort of aligned with what we were talking about, about money. What's one thing that you purpose purposefully don't spend much money on? And then on the flip side, what's something that you feel like is a worthwhile splurge? Huh? 
Um, I don't spend a lot of money on clothes. Um, not because I don't like them, but just cause I don't. And I do, like I said earlier, I spend more money on art than, um, yeah, than I, than other things. What's one thing that you really love about yourself? I really love, I truly love that it is natural for me to care a lot and to care to the tune of actually putting myself in situations to support the people who I care about and like staying longer at school to help us school and, or, you know, being available to my students years later, you know, that is something I really value about myself and it, it comes naturally it's something that I, it's, it's, I don't have to work hard at it, but I think it's one of like my, my golden center, I think is, is one of the things that I, I love the most about myself. I wouldn't, I wouldn't change it. Yeah. What's a recent shift or decision that you made that had a big impact in your life? Oh my God, there's so many. I would say that the biggest one that, that continues to give back to me every day and that I really I'm experiencing as a, as a, as a current, like a electrical current that sort of is running consistently was this decision to really close my previous business down and to devote myself in a generous way to this um, cosmic work of, of dreaming for a living. Yeah. That's huge. Yeah, huge. Looking back, what's one decision in your life that at the time it felt incredibly hard for you to make that you struggled to make? <laughs> uh, I, I'm still in the middle of, do I have, to, I have to look back? Okay, I'll look back. No, I mean, it can be, it doesn't have to be looking back. It can be anything. Just this idea uh, of a decision that was hard to make. It's really hard for me to come out as an artist like really hard for me to call myself an artist but I've started to do it and I'm I've also started to believe it and it's um re that was really hard and I'm I'm glad I did it yeah if anything were possible what's one of your big dreams or fantasies something that you would love to do or experience I would really love to experience um having a really great idea and then having someone write it down and research it for me and give it back to me in the form of a, a, a brief of some kind and then selling that to someone else. Like I would, I would love the creative experience of being able to like have big ideas, have somebody work on it and then fucking pitch the shit out of it to someone else and have like a, a an infrastructure around that. I would, I would love that. That would be just like, just yeah that would be amazing i love the specificity of that answer i try not to like follow any of the these answers like follow the thought yeah. threads too much but oh my gosh yeah. that's so interesting to me okay um <laughs> so the next question is about books um which two or three books or even just one book any type of book any genre would you say has had the biggest impact on you or that you recommend or reread most often mm. 
I reread the series um, by Patrick Rothfuss that these two books, it's actually a trilogy, but the guy has written two books, but the third book has been like, I don't know, 10 years and then coming or something. And his like, I love that his whole community is like, where the fuck is book three? (laughs) You know? Um, And it's like a book about wizards. And it's like, the first one is like the name of the wind. And it's like this really like epic kind of like Lord of the Rings kind of like really like tall tale that wraps around itself and I really I really enjoy reading that for the pure pleasure and escapism of what it is I really really like that book um another book um that is actually also also fiction (laughs) but is Octavia Butler's Wild Seed that's one of my favorite um, books to revisit and to give to people as like if people haven't read Octavia Butler, like giving that book to people. Um, yeah, that's that's two. Right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah, I love that. Um, I also love that you gave fiction uh, recommendations because I'm always looking for new fiction to read. So that's good. I tend not to read enough fiction. So the last question, if you could leave our community, the listeners with one call to action, what would it be? Maybe a question to ask themselves or a small action to take? What would you love for people to do? What's the real question? That's what I want to know. What's the real question? Yeah. When you're circling and ruminating and beating yourself up late at night, early in the morning, middle of the day, what is the real question? What's the best place for people to find you and say hi online? Do you have a favorite way to connect with new folks and for people to find out, you know, um, how to work with you, that kind of thing? I'm a huge fan of direct connection. So you can call me, you can text me, you can write me an email. My website is dianavalentine.com and it's spelled D-Y-A-N-A valentine just like valentine's day.com and all my information is there and i really really mean it if there's something that you heard today or you want to talk about i love follow-ups to interviews and i people say oh no she doesn't really mean that i actually mean it and probably one or two people might reach out to me after an interview and i'd like that to be like 10 mm-hmm well, good. I love it. I love that you put it out and that you that you clarified that, no, I actually want people to reach out to me because I agree. It's yeah. something that people hear and they're like, oh, she's really busy. She doesn't really like, no, Diana wants to hear from you. So I will make sure to put um, links to all that in the show notes. Uh, this was such a treat, Diana. Thank you so much. Thank you. And that's our show for today. Thanks so much for listening and for being part of the Real Talk Radio family. Speaking of the Real Talk Radio family, I wanted to give a huge shout out to Adam Day, my producer and sound engineer. Adam created the music for this show, and he makes everything work and flow and sound way better than I ever could on my own. You can find him and his music, which is awesome, and his sound editing work at adamday.net. And as I said way back at the top of the episode, this is now a 100% listener-supported show. The show is made possible by awesome people like Flo. Hi, Flo. Hi. Hi. You ready to uh, answer five random rapid-fire questions? Not really, but uh, let's go. (laughs) That's a great answer. Um, So the first question is my favorite question. What are you totally obsessed with right now? So right now I'm really obsessed with my physiotherapy exercises. Um, So I'll tell you the whole story around this. Um, I've had... uh, 
back issues for about 15 years and more recently like knee issues. And um, I've moved around uh, to 17 different cities since I was 18. So I've seen a lot of different physiotherapists and, you know, some of them weren't uh, were better than others, but all of them would tell me, you know, you have to do the exercises. And I would do them for a couple of weeks and then, you know, other things would come up and I would stop doing them. And I always found an excuse like, oh, I'm moving around, so it's not easy. Um, or the other excuse is, um, I'm really good at short-term goals, but I'm not really good at uh, long-term goals. So, um, uh, that was my excuse, and then I realized uh, this is actually rubbish. Um, you know, uh, there are a lot of uh, long-term goals that I've been good at. So Jenny Brusso, in a recent article, said that she didn't want to stop herself to do things because the person she imagined she was uh, didn't do those things. So, you know, for me, um, I... I imagined I was not good at long-term goals, um, but I've decided that's rubbish. So I've um, I've really applied myself to those uh, physiotherapy exercises, and it does help to have like some hiking goals uh, this summer um, to to give me um, um, yeah to to make sure I keep uh, I keep at it. Um, and I've also, like, I'm not giving myself any excuses. So I've found an app um, to encourage me. And um, like even if I'm tired in the morning and at night, I'm always making this a priority. So, yeah, that's... Um, that's a great story it. and a great answer and a good reminder for me that I have my own exercises from a chiropractor mm-hmm. that I need to do. So <laughs> thank yeah. you for that reminder. As soon as we're done talking, I'm going to go do that. Um, what's something that feels frustrating for you right now? Like an area of your life that feels a bit challenging? Um, so I live in Vancouver, uh, BC in Canada, and um, I have a dog. So I'm the, the thing that's frustrating is um, house hunting or, you know, I just want to find um, an apartment that's not too far from my job um, that I can afford and that will accept dogs, which is not a good combination in Vancouver because it's very expensive and they have a, a lot of uh, restrictions around pets. So that's definitely frustrating. I've been looking on Craigslist every day for the past six months uh, and still nothing. So that means my dog, I had to send him back to France to live with my parents. Um, so yeah, I'm looking for something. Yeah, that does sound frustrating. Yeah. Um, what's something that a lot of people seem to care about that you just can't get into? Something that a lot of people care about that you just don't really care about? Mm, I, I would say my f- first thought was uh, a lot of uh, TV shows uh, that people were really into or are really into, and I never really got into it. Uh, like the first uh, thing is, uh, at first the one that popped into my mind was uh, Game of Thrones. Like people are really into it or The Walking Dead and they're really into it. And I just can't really deal with uh, that level of violence. And mm-hmm. I'm the same. Yeah, I, I can't get into either of those either for the same reason. Yeah. So you're not alone. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> um, what's your secret weapon in your healthiest relationship? Like in one of your really healthy relationships, what do you feel like is the thing that you do particularly well? Mm, honesty. 
I think in all of my relationship, I think uh, that's something I didn't do well in the past. And, uh, you know, I worked through a lot, like therapy is awesome. Um, and and one, one of my priorities in my life is honesty. Um, so that's something I uh, really use in a lot of relationships. Mm-hmm. Well, and that leads right into the next and last question. What's one specific thing that you wish people were more open and honest about? Right. Um, uh, relationships, actually. Uh, romantic relationships. Is, or, so, I, I don't know. It's, uh, relationships are complicated. And I think we, when we grow up, people tell us there's a very clear distinction between romantic relationship and friendship. But then you grow up and with all, uh, all the things I learned about um, you know, people who are asexual or aromantic. Uh, where do you draw the line between a friendship or something romantic? Uh, when there's sex involved, that's easy. But then when there's not, it's not so easy. And I'm, I'm curious about, um, I'm not really looking for a, rela- a romantic relationship. So I'm curious about people who are really looking for um, a romantic relationship and what's um, what what's the pushing them to to look for one because uh, I know there's a lot of pressure from society but I want to dig deeper know more about it yeah that's uh, I, I think about this too the difference between romantic relationships and friendships and I mean obviously this could be a whole other conversation but it's a topic yeah. that I would like to cover more deeply on the show and mm-hmm. everything that you just said you obviously can't see me but I'm nodding along a lot so yes <laughs> I totally agree with you um, so you're a member of our Patreon support squad which means that you're one of the people that listeners can thank for making this podcast possible since you make a powerful reoccurring pledge that helps to fund the costs of producing the show each season for which I am very grateful and I would love for you to share why you decided to support the show and maybe your you know favorite thing about being in our community so i found your instagram through um uh, rowdy kitten tammy stroll um who is awesome by the way uh and you were hiking the arizona trail and so i started reading your uh, blogs on instagram and uh, one of them you really acknowledge your uh, privilege which i you know it's always something i i love to see um and then i really love the way you were um talking about your hike and uh, how you were really honest about what you were going through. So I started um, looking at your website and so you had a podcast and I'm not, I don't listen to podcasts usually because I, I can't wear headphones uh, a lot. So um, actually sus- subscribe to your Patreon before I listen to anything on your podcast, because that's even though just reading the re- the summaries of the podcast, that's definitely something I'd love to see more. Um, to you know, the your guests are very diverse; they come from um, different places, and it's not all you know straight white men. So it's uh, it's definitely something I want to see more. That's awesome. That makes me so happy to hear that. It's always an interesting thing for me too to hear where people came from, right? Like that you came from Tammy, who I agree is so great, and then mm-hmm. through the Arizona Trail Post, and then you know it's it's great. Yeah. So I really appreciate that. Um, and I think you said before that you are in Vancouver, right? 
Yeah, Vancouver, Canada. Okay, and then um, if anyone wants to reach out, say hi. Do you have a social media link that you want to share? Uh, the easiest one is my Instagram. It's readwalkcreate on Instagram. I, like I post it. a lot of uh, hiking. If you don't like hiking or dogs, uh, I mean, you can still reach out to me, but uh, that's mostly what you'll see. I mean, that's hiking and cats. That's me too. So I assume that anyone listening to this is probably chill with that. Um, that's awesome. Thank you so much. And to everyone listening, if you love the podcast, if you want to help keep it going, if you want over 40 hours of bonus content, plus lots of other fun opportunities and extras, just go to patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette to make your pledge of $8 or more for each eight episode season. I honestly can't tell you how much your support means to me, and it'll be so much fun to get to know you better after you've joined our community. Maybe we can even record a future outro together like this one. That would be awesome. So until next time, here's a big virtual hug and a reminder that we're all just doing the best we can. And no matter what, we're in this together. 